Deliveroo presents Go Time. Sleeves up, hair back, remove all obstacles to the door. When your food is on its way, you can't just sit there. Practice your chopstick skills. Or summon your favorite plate for the burger of all burgers. The food may be different, but the game plan is always the same. So, download the app and order now from Nando's, Milano, Burger King, or wherever else you fancy. Deliveroo. Food. We get it. Feast, season, season, geographical restrictions apply. In case you missed it. With Susan Cahill. A look back at the week on News Talk. Well, first of all, I'd look after all the people that looked after me during hard times. I'd buy myself a house. I'd buy my son a house, my grandson a house. And maybe I'd buy a place abroad for them. Not for me, because I'm getting older. I'd buy myself a mobile ho- mobile home in the country somewhere. And to just peace of mind and happiness after that. I pay off my mortgage and uh, help my family to pay off their mortgage as well. Live a comfortable uh, lifestyle. Would you make any big, uh, expensive buys? Not really, just to pay off the mortgage and, and to relax. I'll probably get a, a decent enough car. That's about it. But make sure the family's looked at and their mortgages are paid for or not. I'd look after my family. I'd look after people that need it. How would you treat yourself if you won that type of money? I wouldn't like it. I wouldn't want to change like if I won it. But I'd love to own it to help people. Help me family. I have a big, I love sisters and brothers, niece and nephews. Uh, well, I don't really play the lotto and uh, I don't particularly want to win the lotto. So um, that's about it. Why would you not want to win it? I don't really want loads of money. Money is not, uh, not everything, it's uh, grand. Happy enough. Well, the first thing I do is sort all my family out, bring them on holidays, buy cars, and then to open up somewhere for the homeless to stay. Like a big, huge, empty factory, so that you could put all beds and showers and everything filled and all in the for them. Would you buy anything extravagant? No, just do the same as I do, because money is not everything. Barry White reporting. Hello and a very good morning to you. Now, are you feeling lonely or is there a degree of loneliness creeping into your life? Well, take a listen to this. For me, what I've come to realise is loneliness isn't just about our our inability to connect meaningfully with others, but also to connect meaningfully with ourselves because we're living in a world now where everybody's telling us what to do with everything from our eyebrows to, you know, the kind of handbag we should be having or the holidays when we can have them, um, et cetera. Um, but the the downside of all that is that we stop listening to ourselves and we can actually get to a stage where we start to go for stuff and we no longer know whether we're going for it because it's something we intrinsically love or because we've become, dare I say, almost so brainwashed into thinking, you know, that we've got to have the Kardashian look or whatever, that we we kind of lose a sense of what we personally need to thrive. And you know, what you need to thrive, Sean, and what I need to thrive, I mean, there are some basics we all need, but there are certain things that are going to really set you alight that won't set me alight and vice versa. And if we don't pay attention to those nuances, then we lose connection with who we are as people. And so we can become difficult to be around because we, we're not easily able to enjoy life and enjoy the people around us and that's when of course life starts to feel a bit lonely because people get fed up of you know dealing with our moods and having to tiptoe around us and or or feel that they've got to be making us happy all the time um and one of the keys, sorry. Yeah, I was because I was going to say a, a, a central theme in your book, it, it, it strikes me, is that physical connection with the world and other people. Uh, um, I mean, not, I don't mean going around pawing people, but, you know, the, to be in the <laughs> presence of people. Absolutely. And that's a third part of loneliness that I've come to realise is that, you know, to feel fully alive, we need to do stuff that brings our senses alive, you know, taste, smell, touch, etc. And that um, 
being around others, share, you know, sharing casual meals, doing spontaneous stuff, friendships across generations, and also getting out in nature. These are the things that stimulate our senses, stimulate us as, as um, our biology, and where we start to feel wonderfully um, and powerfully alive through really simple, simple little things we're doing, which are basically good habits. Um, and these follow us into how we can interact in our, in our communities, in our, in, at work. Um, now, you know, the kind of more forward-thinking companies are getting into, um, obviously not when COVID's striking, it hard but are getting into eating together because they see the power of joy of people actually sharing food and you know that kind of very what we see now is a very old-fashioned thing of breaking bread together you Mm. know not trying to have the most perfect dinner party or picnic together but just actually bringing food that have been has been prepared with love simply everybody contributing and just really loving being together such interesting research there from writer and author Maggie Hamilton from Moncrief what was your your time like in um the house that you mentioned James um i was with three other guys um we were d- different ages one was younger and two were older um of the four of us that were there, there's two ended up maintaining their recovery, myself and another guy, and we we ended up going on through education, but the other two lads ended up relapsing, and to the best of my knowledge, they're not in a good place today, um, but they're alive, and once they're alive, there's this, this, the supports are still there, and there's nothing to say that they won't get it again, do you know? Mm. But it, I suppose when you're living in a house like that, you have a key worker appointment once or twice a week. You have um, it's independent living, so there's no yes. staff on site. But you do have like um, a key worker would come. You'd have a weekly meeting with the team leader, and you kind of iron out any issues. But it's just it's independent living, but you're minded in it as well, you know, and, and it helps you to build those life skills. Um, during that time, or even before that, before you you, you availed of the services, James, um, what was your relationship like with your family and friends at that point? Well, before I went into residential treatment, my relationship with family and friends was non-existent. To be honest, you know, I would have, especially with, with family, because I was so ashamed of who I became um, due to heroin addiction, and I was my appearance was very, I was very obviously addicted. And I didn't want to be bringing any worry uh, to my parents or my family, so I would spend Christmases and you know um, any kind of family occasion. I, I, I tended not to go, just out out of that, you know. But I suppose there's heroin is a highly stigmatized drug, and when you're using it, you know you know it is, and you feel every bit of it, you know. So I just felt ashamed. I felt dirty. So big, I suppose the worst thing about addiction is the disconnectedness or the isolation, and that very lonely and dark place sometimes your only comfort is the drug you know and maybe if I didn't have that drug I, I could have went into the river or I, I could have you know taken my own life but at least I, when I look back at the kind of paradoxically at least I had something to get me through that period of life period of my life that was very difficult mm-hmm. but you know but eventually when I got the when I got the help I needed and the maturity as well to seek out the help and to like the services was always there to try and help me down through the years but I just wasn't ready or I wasn't able to use them. Yeah. But eventually I got into a place where I could tap into the services that were available and you know, um, having a stable home is, was the key really, you know, just to have, your, have a base. And I remember the first day I went into the treatment, it was a, a detox facility. Um, I put my clothes into the wardrobe and closed the door. My first time now putting my clothes in a wardrobe for months because I was living out of a black bag. And just to key the door behind you, have a hot shower and lay down on the bed and an overwhelming sense of um, safety and security come over you. you know, just to have your, your basic needs met for the first time 
and I knew, you know, from that point, like that, I was never going to go back to to, to the drugs, you know. Yeah, it's um, it's really interesting to listen to you, James. And I, you know, a lot of messages just coming in, um, supportive messages actually for you from listeners, just talking about it's you know incredible to to hear you uh, talk so eloquently about the service and how you've you know gone through it and how it has benefited you. You mentioned UCC; you were there for a time as well. How did you find that? Uh, a lot of imposter syndrome. Actually. <laughs> I had I, I had a lot of self limiting beliefs that you know. UCC was for kind of rich kids or posh people on the other side of the city, you know, but it wasn't until um, I, I started dating my wife when we were later married, Gillian, and she had been through UCC with similar backgrounds. Then all of a sudden that became an option for me. So I ended up doing, first I did a level five in a further education college, and then I did a, a bachelor's degree and, and a master's degree over there. And I work in addiction services now and... I'm on the board of Cork Simon and I have a podcast and my life is very busy and you know, I'm not tempted by drugs because my life is so good yeah. at the moment but when your life is terrible, drugs is just a form of medication to help numb the pain and you know, numb the harsh reality. What's the name of the podcast, James? It's called the Two Norries Podcast. And if you're not from Cork, you won't know what a Norrie is. <laughs> but a Norrie is somebody from the north side of the city. So it's right. myself and my friend, Timmy. And it's themed around social issues and health issues. Simon Community Campaigner James Leonard from Lunchtime Live. Now, no Irish child should leave school without having learned to cook for themselves. That is the view of Darina Allen, chef, author and founder of the Ballymaloo Cookery School, who is submitting a petition to Minister Norma Foley demanding practical cooking classes for every child on the school curriculum. And she joins me now. Good morning, Darina. And um, why do you believe this to be so important? Good morning, Kira. Well, you know, uh, at, the, at the moment, I feel we're really... Um, failing in our duty of care in, in many ways to the uh, next generation. So many people, even nowadays, almost two generations have left our homes and our schools without being able to uh, cook for themselves, without the basic skill to feed themselves properly. And we can see the impact it's having on people, on health and on in all sorts of other areas as well. So this is a sort of a call to arms uh, Kira and so many, you know, mothers and grandparents and grandfathers and everybody really, really agree with this. And sometimes, we, you know, all it's not just younger people, but many nowadays, you know, who are in highly successful careers, CEO of companies, all those things, just have all the sort of skills to run the country, etc. But actually, some of them can scarcely make toast. And during COVID, uh, this became particularly obvious to people. They suddenly realised how de-skilled they had allowed themselves to become because they concentrated on a different set of skills and suddenly they were faced when there was lockdown with uh, you know having to do 21 meals a week and scarcely knowing where to start okay. and so in a way I feel we're failing in our duty uh, to properly give our, our, our students uh, a rounded education this is a skill we need every single day you know our energy our vitality our ability to concentrate everything stems from the, the, the fuel we put in the tank to keep the system going sort of thing so and it's one of the easiest ways to wean kids off fast food is to teach them how to cook and and, I mean, wh- and what age they should, so should they start learning at, at, at Darina because I was I was reading some of the stuff that you said before and you were saying children from around the age of seven should be able to make a thing like an omelette and, and, and I thought God I must be a terrible parent because <laughs> I'm, pretty, I'm pretty sure yes. my kids oh, had, were no. nowhere near that at that point well, I know, and you know, it's it's. I, I'm sort of in awe of all, um, you know, so many people nowadays who both p- parents are working and everybody's so busy and trying to keep all the balls in the air. And years ago, you know, I learned how to make a loaf of bread originally by just watching my mother. It just the skills are passed from one generation to another, but it's a whole different era now. But you'd be surprised what young uh, children can make. Uh, even younger, young children in, in national school uh, can make, if you know, with a few simple ingredients, if if they're shown and if somebody has time to show them. But so it's, but it's time is a problem. But and the, again, in the schools, I would try. It depends on the on facilities. But basically, in national schools, uh, there could be some simple. T- Things certainly then in secondary schools, yeah. and I'm talking about um, you know boys and girls. I'm not. Sure, I mean, like the Finnish model. No, it's, and it's a life in, skill, in and, I, and I accept that. Um, and I'm, I am a interested life skill. In, yeah. in, in 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 the age at which 
children can start because I think very often parents do introduce their children to doing things like baking cookies maybe or brownies but less so into things like omelettes or soups or stuff that might be actually healthy or useful. Yeah, you know, but whatever gets them started, oftentimes people get into cooking uh, through starting to bake sweet things and then they go on to other things as well. But the, the problem is that the older you start, the more you reckon it's a mystery. And so many people say to me, I can't cook, I can't cook. And they're convinced and they say, I hate cooking. And they hate cooking because they feel they can't do it. And if we show them a few basic, simple skills, they can build on those and suddenly think, wow, I can cook. I mean, you mentioned an omelette there a minute ago. If you can make an omelette, it's the quintessential fast food. It takes 30 seconds to make, or if you want to put something, a little filling in the middle of it, it's about 45 seconds. And I'm not joking you. But then you can do so many other things with it. You can put it into a a little baguette and take it off as a sambo for lunch. You can cut it into strips and put it on a salad or put it into soup. Uh, you can put it, cook it in little the mixture in little cupcake things, and you have kind of like a little mini frittata. So one skill, you know, you can do so one many skill, other things with many meals. Some handy tips there from Chef Dorina Allen from News Talk Breakfast on Saturday. Documentary on News Talk explores the epic life of Black John Moon in White Gypsy Boy, Black Gypsy King. I was enjoying the company of Black John Bone, sitting in his kitchen in Calvin. As we spoke, I could see through the open doors the tail of the young horse waiting for its master. That's right. Do one more teeth and you do. You think that's only a small wee cup. It's gone. Hold on, just the kitchen is quite short. They never ring touchy. I believe I have taken it once or twice. Mm. You can give the potty into a sick a sick animal, can't you? You can, that ain't me. <laughs> <laughs> sure, but no, I, I do get it there below the lane. It's, a good, yeah, it's great for an animal, a sick animal. It's good for manner based. And now after a feed a drink there, there, if you've got pains in your guts, it's a queer man. But if you had a trick diarrhea off the drink, mm. take a good half one, would I guarantee you wouldn't mind getting cured? So you wouldn't. If I was, I would, I would be fond of a drop of drink there like a year ago, I'd always take a full old cup before I'd go to the pub. The one on the stomach. Mm. Great man, it seal off the stomach, do you say? But listen, John, your um, earliest memories, again, what were they like going along the road with different families or describe to me? Put, put very, me very nice, son. Like in the olden times, you had nothing to worry about and you had everything free. If you went into a farmer's place, if you were weak, my tin, I was a tinsmith, betrayed. And they'd buy him a bucket or two, or you'd sell them a bucket. And they'd give you a dinner of potatoes, they'd give you a head of cabbage. And they'd give you a bottle of milk, without accent, or half a dozen eggs. But they had all that stuff for themselves in the 40s. What do you say? But that's gone. That's completely out of the market. A very odd house now has a half a dozen eggs to free range for the eggs. For themselves, they have to buy all that. How many is were in there going along the road? Was there a few families? There could be five or six. I oh, had a good crack. It was all a bit of a good crack. The caravans was nice, pulling them from place to place. You'd only get a, maybe a week or five or six days in a place, or four. Because first and foremost, the horses are tape, and the caravan was gone for the girls. You had to move on. See? That's the we cannot count to read. Everyone makes a fool. <laughs> because we're getting no education. If you went to the school, they had no time for you. Because then you would only had you for a couple of days. They'd take you now, right? But you might be out getting enough sticks for them, for the final. Right? There was no violence setting yet. It's different now. You hear the pony calling me? Yes, sir. <laughs> Never off a time spent, Johnny. 
Like a more person. Is there not a That's a fact. What an interesting story from White Gypsy Boy, Black Gypsy King, from Documentary on News Talk. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. We're back in college now, three weeks, so we're looking for a good night out. I can't get in anywhere. Right, so you're queuing and queuing up around the place. Yeah, I can't get in anywhere. This is a queue there about a mile long. And what's the college night out all about now in 2021? Drinking. <laughs> Drinking and, and boys. <laughs> I'm from Kerry now, and we're back here about a week, and we're just on Camden Street having a few drinks now in the in the queue. Good 200 people in front of us, though. So, uh, what's in store now for the rest of the night? Will it be come closing time? Will it be back to a house? With any luck, with any yeah, luck, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. We'll get back somewhere anyway. We'll see where the night takes us. <laughs> I'm out on Camden Street now for Freshers Week. And you've decided to join this queue here. It's I don't know how many people deep. What would it be? 100 people in front of you? Oh my God! Yes, like 200. Like. Yeah, 300 people. It's ridiculous. So you're dedicated yeah, to get in here? I'm dedicated. We're not going to get in. You're willing to wait? Yes, willing to wait. My name's Terence Rooney. I'm the president of DCU Students Union. And tonight we're at Live at the Lawn 2, where we're going to have two incredible acts. Uh, 49th and Main and Chasing Abbey play live in the middle of DCU campus. And they're going to be warmed up by our own DCU DJ society. There's a sound check going on right in front of us. The sounds are really good. And yeah, like everyone seems really excited around campus for the event. Like everything's happening outdoors, um, everything's safe and social, and where it's it's a great way to allow students to connect in person, meet new people in the safest way possible. And just when you say outdoors, have some of the traditional events been curtailed due to restrictions? Yeah, typically we would have run a lot of events indoors. I think the attitudes in Ireland have changed over the last few months. In that we would have always been afraid of the weather in Ireland, and we would never have allowed ourselves to enjoy ourselves outdoors. But this year, I suppose, given the last few months we've kind of had to adapt and as a result we're seeing people really enjoy themselves and organise incredible events outdoors not only because it's safer but because it's a lot of fun as well and could you describe the atmosphere on campus with the freshers and people that are new to Dublin yeah like the atmosphere on campus has been completely unmatched the weather has really helped us and it's been a real festival atmosphere around campus especially with the tents everyone's just really happy what everyone's going on like even if it's just sitting at a bench with two or three people it really means the world to them that they can connect in person once again have students changed what they're looking for now on a night out? Like, are attitudes changing over the last year and a half? Yeah, one thing we've really noticed over the last week is attitudes are really changing. We've started doing things earlier, so things are finishing earlier. And also, there's been less of a focus on alcohol this year, as we've organised a lot less alcohol events, given restrictions and, um, and regulations. But it, it doesn't seem to bother students that much. So I'm from Cavan and I go to DCU. You're glad to be back on campus? Glad to be back. It's unreal. I didn't expect this much of a buzz, to be fair. It's, it's better than normal, I think, actually. And have you a big night planned? Or? Big night planned, absolutely. Has <laughs> <laughs> it been all week? All week, actually. Uh, no, it's been pretty bad. <laughs> You're just starting the college experience. What are you most yeah. looking forward to? Uh, making new friends, like loads of new people. It's actually easier than I thought it would be. Some DCU students getting ready for one of their first ever college social events. The freshers have landed in Dublin, ready to dive straight into their university experience. The bright lights of the big smoke have been on hold, but they're back, calling for customers to soak up the atmosphere. Nightclub doors may be still closed, but that hasn't stopped queues of students lining up outside some of the other venues. We're in UCD, she's in Trinity, and we're trying to find somewhere to get into. We're looking for a place to get into, but they're all... (laughs) We're we're not even freshers and we can't get in anywhere, but we're on. You dropped the phone there now, is it? It's not not cracked, is it? It's already cracked. Sign of a good night out. Great night out, but we're trying to find somewhere now. So you're giving up on the queues? Well, apparently you have to be here at like four o'clock to get in. You do, and I had college till six, so... Couldn't get anywhere, but we have a few afters lined up, but you don't always have that. So. Exactly. Is it a house party? or if oh, you don't have, for a house if party. If you don't have a house party and you don't have afters, you're going home. Yeah, exactly. And you'd miss the nightclubs? Ah, uh, majorly. I'm on Freshers Week out in Camden Street. It's a good crack. A few pubs are over 21, so pubs are just 18s. They're fairly full, like. But. And how long was the last queue you were in? I joined the back of it. I was there for 20 minutes, and I kind of gave up hope, so... I'll probably, I'll probably float somewhere else, you know. I don't know, somewhere in the city. And what's in store now for the night? Will it be a house party after closing time? or? I'm in halls, though, so there might be like an afters there or something, but we'll see how it goes anyway. We're back in college now, three weeks, so we're looking for a good night out. I can't get in anywhere. Right, so you're queuing and queuing up around the place? Yeah, I can't get in anywhere. There's a queue there about a mile long. And what's a college night out all about now in 2021? Drinking! <laughs> 
Drinking and, and boys. <laughs> Josh Crosby reporting for the Heart Childer with Kieran Cuddihy. I've said this to Jerry a few times on the show, Frankie. That you know we fall into um, parts of our life that become our life essentially. So Frankie Dottori, like you know, there aren't many Italian jockeys, but you became a jockey. It was because your your dad was from Sardinia and he was a jockey, and then you became arguably the most famous jockey in the world. But you probably did that because your dad was a jockey. I did that because, well, two things. First of all, you know, like any Italian kid, I wanted to be a footballer. Yeah. I was, I was, I was okay. I wasn't, but then between the age of eight and nine, all my mates grew a foot and I didn't. <laughs> so, 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 that, so I was getting kicked all over the park. So, so the, plan B was because I was riding ponies and stuff. Though I wanted to be a jockey because, you know, I liked that life. But then I didn't realize then I was going to be this good. And by all kind of fell in by chances. You know, I came to England to learn and, and Kumani took a good, good liking on me and then he taught me a lot and, it, and then the, all things stumble out of what well, I, I still think that I never realized this was going to happen to my life. So, uh, you know, I, I had every intention to, to, to become a jockey and to do well, but not, I didn't, in my wildest dream after I was going to be this good. You mentioned the good genes, right? Uh, is the story about your dad mucking out stables and being asked to ride a horse that was unrideable, is that true? Is that, was that his first experience yeah. of being a jockey? No, basically, yeah, well, what happened was when, when you were apprentices, you signed five years to a, uh, to a trainer. And dad uh, never sat on the horse, so all he was made to do is sweep the yard and muck out. And uh, they had this crazy horse next door stable that only this guy was able to ride. But this guy didn't turn up for a couple of days. He was sick or something. So the trainer was so desperate to get his horse out and 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 get him exercised that my dad stupidly and he volunteered to ride his horse because he, he watched people ride, you know, for months. But he was never never sat on the horse. And I guess because this crazy horse knew, felt that my dad was incapable of riding, he was quiet. And he lobbed him around the track once. And the trainer was so excited. He said, well, just take him round again. And uh, but I think the reason for that horse was calm is because my father couldn't ride. <laughs> because everybody else was used to ride his horse. They used to bully him. And this horse used to get mad. Uh, so that's how I started, really. Well, my theory, that kind of blows my theory up, because my theory was that your dad was obviously an innate horseman. <laughs> there was something inside him that was great, but actually it was just his calmness. Correct. And, you know, also a, a sixth sense, you know. Uh, uh, I guess this horse didn't want to be bullied, and my father wasn't able to bully a horse because he wasn't able to ride, and this horse was, like, calm. And so is that your gift? Is that the genetics that you inherited from your dad, that you actually can feel what well, the horse I needs? Think well, the, uh, mom, mom, she used to work in a circus and she was, uh, she do, did, did everything. She stood on two horses together and, and galloped around, around the circus square, the ring. And she was very supple and so a bit of combination. You know, my dad physically and my mom's suppleness. And I mean, be a horseman is because I've been around horses all, all my life. And, and you know, Luca was always telling me when I was a kid, you have to find the key of every horse because every horse is different. So he used to challenge me by putting me on different type of horses every day and, and it worked. Frankie Dettori from Friday Night Racing on Off The Ball. On Tuesday, the Pat Kenny Show explores the frightening reality of online child sex abuse. Here's Anton Savage and Fiona Jennings from the ISPCC. And just to flag, this conversation is not for small ears. It's a remarkable piece of work. It's a very harrowing piece of work. Can we start with that first finding that a a large proportion of those surveyed said that they were under the age of 18 when they themselves were first exposed to seeing images of child sexual abuse? Are you surprised by that? very surprised by it and very concerned by it as well um that's some as was first of all you said at the start how there were so many respondents to the survey but that 70 percent of them were just children themselves when they first came across this content 
and that a lot of them as well were actually under the age of 13. Um, so I suppose the questions, you know, that I would be asking and that we would be asking in the ISPCC, you know, is how would they have come about seeing this content? You know, is it something they were exposed to by somebody? Did they seek it out? Or as some of the respondents have reported themselves, that they were initially looking for something else and that, that led them to seeing um, online child sexual abuse. And that in itself um, is one of the more so that, striking re- revelations of the survey because it found that more than half, the majority of people who watch online child abuse said that wasn't what they were seeking when they first saw it, that effectively they, they came across it by accident and started to look for more once they had seen it. Yeah, the report gives us some insights into what they actually were looking for. But um, in one way, it's probably not so surprising to us that are familiar with, I suppose, how children and young people use the, the Internet. And we know that, you know, often when children are curious about, you know, their sexual development or their sexuality, that they can often turn to, I suppose, online sources. Um, and often that can be, I suppose, online pornography um, that they can turn to, or in this case, um, you know, online child sexual abuse. So, you know, there's no control, I suppose, over when you put in certain key terms, search terms, um, you know, what's going to show up. And that that, that is hugely concerning. It's worth saying that this survey was done on the dark web of people who were self, who admitted themselves that this is what they were doing, which is why the numbers are so significant, because they literally got thousands of respondents and some, a large proportion of them indicated that they wanted to stop looking at this kind of imagery. I suppose what's most shocking is that a significant minority said that they didn't, that they were entirely happy that this is what they did. Yeah, I think they had a separate survey, all right, that addressed that, that there was around 3,000 respondents to that who said that they wanted to actually continue to look at this type of material. So I suppose there's there's a lot, I suppose, that we can take from that. The, the 5,000 who've engaged with it and who this analysis is based on, or which this analysis is based on, I mean, I think that would suggest to me that, you know, the people that are looking at it, that they want to talk about it, they want to try to understand why they watch it. Um, and it did um, indicate that some had tried to actually stop um, watching it as well, but that they that they struggled to do that. Is there um, is there any insight so, into whether or not they believe hmm. it to be a victimless crime? We don't kind of we don't seem to get that from the reports in the media on the actual um, research, but that's certainly something that you know everybody in the sector who works on this particular issue, you know, that is the message that we do try to get across that. You know, while you may not be physically carrying out the the abuse, but that watching it and being a consumer of that, you know, it is not a victimless crime. Um, we know that the children who are abused in these images, that, um, you know, they are subjected to horrendous sexual abuse. It is real. Um, and they live with knowing that their images of abuse are online. And they can offer endure, I suppose, ongoing re-traumatization as well, you know, when these images surface. So it certainly is not a victimless crime. And I think that's something that we perhaps need to kind of talk about a lot more because there does seem to be a detachment um, with that. Some startling research there from Fiona Jennings from The Pat Kenny Show. The Executive Committee of Dublin and District School Boys and Girls League, which is over 200 clubs, has told members they face expulsion if they're linked to attacks on referees or coaches. The notice was issued after reports that a number of underage games involving players as young as nine were called off due to aggressive and thuggish behaviour on the sidelines. Well, joining me now to discuss this is Harry McCann, former youth referee. Good morning, Harry. Welcome along to the show. Good morning, Jeanette. Now, you were a youth referee until a couple of years ago. What was it that made you step aside? Yeah, so it was a culmination, I think, of a few incidents over the, a really short period of time. So I had been refereeing three or four years at that stage and I'd had received abuse on a, on a number of occasions, but nothing too serious. And then at one t- stage, a, a manager came out of the pitch with a flag and I t- tried to hit me. Um, and I had called the game off and I went home and I decided that it was just uh, becoming too much. There was no benefit to doing it anymore and that the abuse was becoming more regular. Um, and I think like most referees, um, you just kind of have to weigh up whether it's worth it and, and it wasn't. 
And is this kind of abuse like a regular experience for referees it, that you know? Yeah, it, it was becoming more regular, especially when I was in the game and I don't think it's improved since. Um, I think over time, it just kind of crept into the game and very little action was taken by the leagues or by the FAI as a whole. And I think this post, if you if you look at it, to be honest, I think is out of desperation now because I think the leagues really have lost control of the underage game and are realising now that managers and players feel that it's okay and parents feel it's okay to say or do whatever they want and they feel they're going to get away with it because fines and bans really aren't uh, disincentivizing people to, to keep their mouth shut and, and to behave properly like they should be at kids' football. And what kind of abuse is being hurled at, at uh, referees like you, Harry? Like, like, is it just parents on the sidelines? Are they annoyed that maybe their child wasn't selected or that they that you gave a wrong kind of call? Or, or like, what, what? where is it coming from? Yeah, it's, it's usually very small things. Um, you, you'll find it, anything can spark it. And once, you know, a parent or a manager screams something on, unfortunately, then what happens is the kids feel that it's okay and then the other parents feel that it's okay. And it kind of gets out of hand. But the threats can be anything from just screaming abuse to, to threatening violence to actually, you know, coming onto the pitch to waiting in car parks after games. There really is. It's, it's quite serious. And, and as bad as this might sound, it's even worse when you take into consideration that a lot of the time it's during young kids' footballs. You know, it's under 11s, under 12s. Yeah, we're not talking should... here about the FA Cup final. I mean, this is just kids on a Saturday yeah. morning. Yeah, it's, it's very, very young kids as well. You know, kids who are going out on a Saturday morning trying to have a good time with their friends who are getting involved in sports. And, and unfortunately, it's being ruined by individuals on the sideline who clearly have anger issues to start with mm. if they feel the need to scream at a stranger in the middle of a football yeah. pitch. Um, and and, th- and was... as you say, giving that example to their kids. Now, what could be done? Do you think you're saying that bans didn't work and, you know, giving out to the parents didn't work? What would make refereeing safer? I think it's a zero tolerance approach. Um, I think what the problem at the moment is, is that uh, we're giving people second and third chances. Um, I often found it was the same people time and time again who are causing problems. And I think if you look at it, these people are responsible for the well-being and safety of young children. I don't think they should be given second or third chances if they're threatening violence or abuse towards referees. I don't see how it's it's fit or appropriate. And I think what's happening there is that it, it's building up and building up and it's it's creeping into clubs as a whole because individuals are creating bad environments. So I think there's a zero tolerance approach needed. If somebody feels the need to scream or threaten a referee, then they shouldn't be involved in the game of football ever again. Um, and some people might think that's harsh and so, some people might think that's wrong. But what's going to happen here eventually is you'll be hearing one morning that a referee was hit or in the hospital because somebody felt that they were, they were entitled to do that. And that will become more often uh, and more regular. And how this affects kids, of course, as well. What, like this is what they're seeing and learning, presumably. Yeah, and I, I think it's it's what's turning a lot of people away from get the game um, over the long run. You know, there is a shortage of referees. There, are, there was a shortage of referees at the time when I was involved. And I think what will happen here is that, you know, we really will struggle to get people involved mm. in the game and stay involved in the game, especially young children as well. Yeah. All right. Well, Harry McCann, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, will you ever go back to refing, do you think? No, not, not a chance. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. On Friday, best selling author Richard Osman joined Kieran Cudahy on The Hard Shoulder. Here's a short clip. You said that you're fascinated by class. What do you mean yes. by that? Well, you know, I, I, I grew up in the British working class and now I'm very, very, very much in the British middle class. Uh, so I sort of think I've seen everything from every angle. Uh, and, you know, I find myself working in an industry, the television industry, certainly, where for a long time I was slightly surrounded by people who I thought, I suspect if you'd gone to my school, you would not be in this job that you are doing. Uh, and we just it's just a truth that doesn't speak its name anymore you know and you know we're so class riven and you know I'm I'm surrounded by lots of people who went to great public schools and are brilliant by the way and who deserve to be where they are and you know hard workers and kind and smart but when most people are somewhere in the middle right most of us are mediocre that's the truth of it Uh, and if you're somewhere in the middle and went to my school you will not achieve what someone who is in the middle and went to a very posh public school would do you just won't and that seems absurd to me that we still let that be okay. I find that I find that extraordinary. Uh, and somewhere in that, uh, you know, there's a lot of, you know. So for me, as a human being, I find that difficult. As a writer, 
there's this this humor in it and there's conflict yeah. in it and there's, there's there's all sorts of things so it's it's I've, I've always been obsessed with it but that that ability or that inability to move between classes mm. is that something that you know you lament it hasn't changed has it gotten worse has it gotten any better in your lifetime well it's it's fascinating my my the story of my family is the story of an, a huge amount of, of, of british and irish families from the 20th century which is which is the move from from the working class which you really couldn't get out of sort of you know pre the second world war you were you you stayed where you were born a huge amount of social mobility um post war and that that happened with um bits of my family and other, other bits it didn't um happen with uh and so you know i've I've obviously benefited hugely from that but it's a question now of uh how do we kickstart that again yeah because it does seem to slightly kind of uh slightly kind of stopped and the communities that used to be built you know weirdly when people couldn't get out of the working class those communities were so cohesive and so you know there were extraordinary kind of breeding grounds for incredible people uh, and and now you know it, we we need to reconnect with big working class communities and work out how to you know give yeah. people all the opportunities. I would. Do you have a view on how you do it? I mean, education would have been the big yeah. driver of social mobility for a long time. Has that ceased to be the case? Well, you know, yeah. I mean, listen, opportunity is the key, isn't it? That's all you can do is, is properly give people opportunities. You know, and I try and do things. Like I was just doing a scheme with with the old Bailey in in in, in the UK trying to get kind of. Uh, underprivileged kids into law and stuff like that and there are lots of good schemes out there uh but it's it, it just seems to have fallen off the agenda a little bit you know politically no one seems that doesn't seem to be one of the big questions on the table in the way that perhaps it was in the 50s and 60s and 70s because you know you know, and it's a shame because you're wasting so much talent and you're wasting so many brilliant people who'd be growing up running businesses you know providing people with jobs providing countries with uh, uh income tax and it's you know it's a waste of a country's resources not to not to look after everyone it's an element of snobbery is it yeah for sure i mean listen you even in in kind of the kind of tv and kind of books i do there's a certain class of people who recognize i'm not one of them uh and who you know pull up the drawbridge and say, oh, well, people who watch this sort of stuff, you know, are, are idiots. You know, and it's the same group of people time and time again. Uh, and the message is always the same, which is you don't belong here. And that message is pervasive, you know. And if I get it, and I'm right in the heart of British popular mm. culture, you know, and I still get it, and you'd think, God, for I'm surprised to hear you get it. Yeah, but of course, and you know, when I, I used to run a production company called Endemol, and we would bring new people in every year. Uh, and, you know, all sorts of diversity targets, which, which I'm, I've always been a huge believer in. But I would always add a class diversity target as well, um, because that, that was very, very important to me. And, you know, people who would, you have to move to London if you want to work in telly. So we'd make sure for the first six months that, you know, your rent was paid and, you know, you could afford to move to London. And all these things which, mm. people, don't th- which people don't think about. And people from the middle class people, they do not think about it. Um, so I've always done. I've tried to walk it like I talk it, but you know, it's it, we need that everywhere. It's the truth. Yeah, it's, I, I have one more question on this because I am fascinated mm. by it myself. Before we move on, I mean, diversity inclusion is such a a hot topic at the moment, and and it's more than I, I heard a great phrase. It, it's not about counting heads; it's about making heads count. But mm. um, it, it's interesting you talk about a, a class target as well because that, yeah. that's often not included. Well, because because it's hard to measure. Right. Yeah. Gender is easier to measure. Race is easier to measure. Class is, is, is quite hard to measure. You know, my view always was running a big company that while everyone else was sort of going, oh, no, it's got to just be best person for the job. No quotas, best person for the job. I was thinking, but your company the is pure a, meritocracy. Is, is, yeah, but their company is 80 percent men. You think but so at some point you've run a system where it's not the best person for the job. So that, that doesn't make sense. So I always made sure we tried to recruit. Uh, you know, as widely as possible. And it was, the, the best thing about it is I wasn't being PC. It was just enormously profitable for us. We were bringing in people. We were bringing in diverse voices. We were, we were selling ideas that no other companies were having because we were interviewing people from different communities, getting the best people, literally the best people. I always say with football, you know, if you want a new manager, if, you're, if I'm Fulham, mm. okay, I can probably get the 70th best male football manager in the world to come and manage Fulham. Or I could get the best female manager literally the number one best female manager there has ever been would come and manage Fulham. You think, do that. Some strong views there from comedian and author Richard Osman from The Heart Shoulder with Kieran Cuddihy. On Sunday, Alive and Kicking explored the role of mentoring in personal development. Here is life coach and mentor Aidan O'Brien. 
So do you think most people know what they want in life? Yes, as you say, it's great to be guided by a coach or, or an expert. Mm. But ultimately, people know the life that they want for themselves, but it's self-limiting beliefs that, that hold them back. You, you'd think so. I think a lot of people, and I've, you know, I've literally worked with thousands of people over the last 11, 12 years and from all over the world. And it's, we have a lot of the same patterns all over the world. I think a lot of people don't actually have clarity on their future. They don't have a vision. They get caught in a, in a cycle of, of comfort. You know, people run away from the fear. They run away from their darkness. They, it's like having a thorn in your arm. You, you spend your whole life building your life as not to bump off the thorn. You know, it's a great, Michael Singer is an author. He's a great book called The Untethered Soul. And that's what he talks about. You know, instead of dealing with the thorn, feeling it, acknowledging it and healing it, we build our lives around not feeling that pain, not feeling that fear, not feeling that rejection. So I think a lot of people don't know what they actually truly want. And it's amazing the feedback I got from some of my clients. And again, I have, I have people who are CEOs of companies. I have entrepreneurs. I have coaches as well on my programs. And one of the, the main or the most consistent feedback, what they all love the most is to say, oh my God, I never realized I didn't have a vision. I didn't realize how unclear I was. You know, so I think people lack clarity. I think they don't know who they are. I, I think they don't value themselves or what they can bring to the world enough. I think they get stuck in jobs or careers that pays the bills. And I think that's where the anxiety, the stress, the mental health, all the stuff is, is coming from. And do you think we assume when we look at someone who's successful in, in whatever that means to us, mm-hmm. that they've had this straight linear trajectory where there's been no failure, where there's been no struggle, where there's been no hardship and that we need to embrace that a little bit more and know that failure along the way is all just part of it. A hundred percent. And I mean, you see these quotes on Instagram and all this about the entrepreneur life and these things. A lot of people, they love sharing these quotes, but they don't actually feel it. They don't live it, right? Failure is so common among successful people. I would say that the more successful you are, the more failure you've had. And I mean that. And I know a lot of successful people and they have more stuff, more crap going on than the people who don't have the success. I think you have to, that's just part of it. And again, I think a lot of people avoid that, you know, because it's scary and you feel bad about yourself at times. But that's the entrepreneurial journey. And when I say entrepreneurial, by the way, to me, that word means responsibility. So you can be in a career and still have an entrepreneurial mindset. You can be looking for the promotion. You can be looking to be a leader within your position. I think it's about taking responsibility for yourself. And in life where our soul is happiest when we're progressing, when we're growing. And I think, you know, to continually progress, we have to overcome these challenges. And most of the challenges are actually within ourselves. I encourage people all the time to be a student of yourself. Everybody keeps looking externally. They keep looking outside. The challenges are within. And when you start realizing that and you start facing that, the outside world literally becomes much easier to deal with. So can we not just coast along in our comfort zone, Aidan? <clears throat> You can do what you want. <laughs> absolutely. This is the thing. You can absolutely do what you want. Everybody can. And a lot of people don't even realize that. I think, you know, I think a lot of people feel still some sort of debt or responsibility based on their legacy from their parents, based on the environment, some sort of social path to follow. And, you know, I don't think a lot of, or enough people ask themselves, what do I really want? Like, who am I? And what do I really want? You know, just, I call it identity without awareness. I think so many people have fallen into an identity that's almost given to them in some form or another, whether through childhood or being a teenager, through college, through their environment, through their parents, that if you actually stop and, and start to do some reflection on yourself, be a student of yourself, ask yourself some new questions. The right question is always the answer. This is, you know, once you ask yourself, that's why coaching is so powerful. Coaching is not telling you anything. That's the difference between coaching and mentoring. Mentoring is me teaching you what I'm an expert in. Coaching is asking you questions to bring your expertise out. That's a very big difference. The direct and insightful Aidan O'Brien from Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna. And of course, you can tune into Claire every Sunday morning from 9 till 10. OK, I'm going to leave you with now some classic Henry McKean. Have a great weekend. OK, so I'm now going to drive this Aston Martin. Tell us about this beautiful James Bond car. 
So one of the things with Aston, obviously, is that the vehicles are all hand-built at the factory in, in Gaden. Um, so what you'll find is that it's just it's attention to detail, so the small things. Um, but this particular car is, a, is our sports car. So this is the car that we used to race in the WEC Championship. And because of that, it's, it's probably the most fun car we make. Um, so I said, we'll, we'll take it for a drive here, see what you think. Um, but I'm, I'm sure you get the grips of it really quickly. All right, okay. So um, do I have the seat at the right angle? Uh, well, you tell me how comfortable is that? I'm so very comfortable. Your controls are just at the side there. So okay. feel free to move it backwards and forwards. So, oh, that's a bit close. Magnificent, isn't she? Zero to 60 in 3.2 seconds. Fully bulletproof, a few little tricks up her sleeve. It's a shame, really, she was meant for you, but she's been reassigned to 009. And if you put your foot on that brake for me, please, in the middle, that's it. Brake. And then press the start-stop button. Oh my goodness me, listen to that power of that engine of this James Bond Vantage. Okay, so I need to indicate, because this is a road, we haven't closed off the road, uh, to accelerate. Do I just press the accelerator? That's it, yeah. So okay, I think we'll, I can do that. We'll need to put it into drive first. So oh, we've put got to put it, it into drive. That's it. Okay, there's a little bit of disco music. Oh, I don't mind that. So, right, so now indicate. Oh, better move the mirror, just to make sure. Um, oh, here comes a van, hang on. That's the indicator. I think we're ready to go so I'll just move off slowly and it, it just moves forward automatically and I'm just feeling the power and um, there is a huge amount of power in this thing my goodness me I can just about see over the steering wheel wouldn't be a problem for James Bond <laughs> so how fast can this thing go this will come up a top speed of 193 miles per hour here we go so I, I don't want to break the speed limit here you're getting on really well we're still on the road so it's always a plus point smoother ride than I thought. I thought it was going to be more rough and tumble. Yeah, no, the cars nowadays are very much usable as everyday cars, so they, they, it's funny, they've got such a difference in character where you can drive it in a more sedate mode, but press a couple of buttons on that steering wheel, which we'll do in a second, and all of a sudden the car takes on a completely different life. So, I'm going to ask you to play some James Bond music, or sing uh, or, or hum some James Bond music for me, <laughs> so I can pretend I'm in the film and do that. Well, I think Diamonds Are Forever is probably one of the few ones that I actually know, but I don't know if the radio listeners would want to hear my dulcet tones. So. We're waiting for it. <laughs> I do feel like I'm in James Bond. Do you get the girls? Do you get the ladies? Oh, here's a, the break is in the middle, isn't it? Yes, that's the one. Down. That was the first time I had to slow down there. We nearly ended up in a field. I better concentrate now. Because this machine um, ain't cheap. We want to get it back in one piece. We're coming to a yield sign here, and there's a big lorry, and we want to try and not crash this thing, but at the same time, have a spectacular James Bond chase. Does anyone ever chase you in this thing? <laughs> I think just more to get the photographs, I think. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. Has your fuse box gone haywire? Is your water pressure too weak? Or maybe your boiler needs an upgrade? They don't last forever, you know. Well, the good news is that there's a local hero in Dublin for that. So if a block sink is not helping with Wednesday's hump day, take the hassle out of it with localheroes.ie. Our online service connects you with trusted tradespeople in your area and all work comes with a 12-month guarantee backed by Borgosh Energy. Try it out while listening to your podcast. You could get a quote in minutes at localheroes.ie. TNCs apply. Visit localheroes.ie for full details.